This week on Three Questions with Corey Kareem. Every failure is an opportunity to do better and learn from. Um, every failure is not the end. I have had many hardships and many failures throughout my entire life and my career, personal, professional. And I can never let it be the end for me because there is no end at that one thing. Now, before we get started with this beautiful conversation, please help a brother out and click on that follow button on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome back, guys. Welcome back to another episode of Three Questions with Corey Kareem. The podcast where we sit down with some amazing people who are doing some amazing things. And that's right. You guessed it. We asked them three questions, sometimes four, sometimes five, six or seven. Yes, I read the comments. I know, I know, I know. But rather than talk about people's wins or successes, we talk about their failures, more specifically the lessons that they learn from those individual uh, experiences. So uh, with that being said, uh, my guest today is a vision-driven change agent with over 10 years leading digital advertising and marketing initiatives for Fortune 500 companies. She's currently a senior partnerships manager at LinkedIn, where she manages ad tech partnerships across strategic B2B and B2C businesses, helping clients achieve their sales and business goals. Wow, that's a mouthful. Previously, she was the former chief of staff and an advisory board member uh, for Ad Color, where she contributed to the planning and execution of the annual Ad Color Conference and awards. So, without further ado, Jesse Jack, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Sometimes it's very it's it's kind of shocking to hear the things I've done and achieved. So, uh, right. thank you for the, <laughs> the introduction. Right. It's funny. I always kind of get that response um, from folks and sometimes they feel like, are they talking about me? And then sometimes they feel like, yeah, that's right. That's right. So I'm going to ask you, which one of those two do you lean more towards? I fluctuate between the two. Yeah. Uh, in the beginning, it's kind of like, this, are you talking about me? Hello, <laughs> Jesse. Um, but towards the end, it's like, yeah, yeah, I did that. I did that. I did that. I do that. I still do it. Awesome. I love it. I love it. And I also see in your profile, you were a CUNY graduate, right? So you you did, yeah, what schools did you go to? I am a proud CUNY brat. So I got my bachelor's at Brooklyn College. Hey, that's what we got in common. That's what's up. Brooklyn College with a focus in communication, television, radio, and film production. And then I got my MA from Baruch College, focused in corporate communication, advertising, and marketing. Fun fact, I actually, my first year of college, I did go to an all-girls Catholic school in D.C. I did get a scholarship to go there. Wow. But I realized my place was home for my education, so I came mm-hmm. back, and that's why I completed both my degrees. That's amazing. Amazing. I love to always connect with a, a fellow Brooklyn alum, CUNY alum, all the above. So that's amazing. So, uh, Jesse, I know that I kind of gave you a bit of a lightweight intro. Um, so for the folks, for my listeners, for my audience that are not familiar with who you are and, and what you've done so far with your career, 
uh, why don't you share a bit about your background and your inspiration to getting into this particular field? Yeah, so a bit about my background. Brooklyn, born and raised. My family is from Jamaica. Mm. Um, and I have had a passion to work in media for quite a while. My passion initially was focused in production for television, radio, and film. Um, but I realized I had an interest in that within marketing and advertising. So as I was completing my BA at Brooklyn College, I actually started doing PR, um, freelance PR work. So I was um, doing some internships for a saucy PR, and I actually did, uh, landed an internship at Dorchester Media. So for those of you who don't know uh, who or what Dorchester Media is, is they actually owned Ride On and Black Meat Magazine. So all those magazines that you know, came with the posters when you put on your wall, I, I was an intern for that and I actually helped styled um, and launched one of the first, when Nicki Minaj one of her first um, shoots, which is Barbie focused and I'm credited as one of the PR managers for that. So that's where I got my wow. start. So I started in PR doing internships before making my way into more of a corporate marketing background um, and eventually landed my way in tech and where I am today at LinkedIn. That's, that's amazing. You know, it's funny when I think when I was asking you a question, I was thinking about myself, like what was my inspo to getting to the kind of digital ad sales world? For those of you that don't know, I also work in uh, the same kind of line of business. And for me, Jesse, when I was in the 10th grade, I think the movie uh, Jerry Maguire, mm -hmm. I saw and I know he was a, a sports agent, but something about that whole marketing aspect of marketing your client, your athlete. And then I took a, uh, a, a course, a, a, a class called, tele, I think it was technology communications. And they had me use Photoshop and they had me do video editing and all this other stuff. And I said, if I could combine these two right here, I think this is what I wanna do. And that's when the first seed for me was planted. So do you have like a moment like that in your life where you're like, you had like, it was almost like an aha moment. I don't necessarily know if I had an aha moment. I can give you, I can go a little bit deeper though. So yeah. when I was a kid, I was I born with a dis physical disability. I've had over six surgeries in my life. And at one point I was in a wheelchair, with both my legs in cap. Right. And I had a, a really incredible family that uh, helped me live out some of my imaginary fairy tales and just helped me explore different avenues where while I couldn't maybe go outside, I can still be outside by envisioning it. So I started reading a lot of books, a lot of comic books and watching right. a lot of TV. So I don't necessarily think there was an aha moment. I just knew that I always loved creativity. And I was also an artist. So I did a lot of sketch work and design work. Um, so I, my family really helped me navigate avenues where I can build out expressions and not just live in this cocoon where I felt so different from everyone. Right. Um, so I, I, and I think I started exploring that. So I, I did a lot, I, re I read comic books. I read a lot of, um, other fantasy books. I did a lot of sketching and painting and drawing. Um, but I started exploring those avenues. I would say in high school, when I started taking specific art classes and right. my high school also had a television, kind of like a television production, um, curriculum. So I started doing that. So though I would say maybe high schools around the time where I started actually being active in those interests but it was sparked early on in my youth when I was going through those times. Right, right. No, thank you for sharing that. And so a huge part of this uh, podcast is we like to kind of touch on people's failures and then we kind of extend from there, if you will. So 
tell me about the most difficult moment you've experienced either in your personal life or in your career what happened how'd you get through it you know and most importantly what did you learn from that particular experience so i've had a couple of tough experiences and if i think about you know from the professional side i would say it was a time i was laid off from a, a role i really fought for mm. I was temping for a while with this pharmaceutical organization. I started on the HR side and then I worked my way up to marketing is the only way I saw in. And right as I was going to get the promotion, I was laid off and it wow. wasn't any performance based um, mm -hmm. in impacts. It was more so it was actually acquired by another organization in Jersey. Mm -hmm. So they were, you know, it was kind of like first people that were contractors. Um, and this was a week you know, right after I was told I was getting the offer there. And so that wow. was tough because for me, I've been working since I was 13 years old. I started mm -hmm. working in the flea market with uh, my aunt selling costumes, selling a silver jewelry in the cold. So you're a true, you're a true Jamaican. <laughs> I, I've been doing, I've been working forever and I'm not going to tell you my age, but I've been working for a while. I've been making my own money. And it all started when my mom said, I mean, my mom got so mad at me. She got me a cell phone when I was in junior high and I ran up this bill and she's like, if you want to keep this phone, you have to get a job. And I was like, I bought my phone. I want to talk to my friends and it motivated me to get a job. And I've been working ever since. So I've been working since I was 13 and not having a job for a while was tough. Um, because I, because even though I didn't have a job, I wasn't asking for help. I was right. dipping into my savings. I was hustling on the sign, not street hustling, but yeah, right, yeah. I, was, I was writing mm -hmm. press releases. I was writing bios for people. I was dipping back into PR um, briefly to make ends meet. So it was very, very hard. And, you know, I do help my mom and my family. Um, so those instances were nights I didn't know where my next paycheck was coming. And when you think about it, I have health. I have had a health condition since I was born mm -hmm. and not having health insurance was hard um right. it's it's hard you can't just you, you can obviously go to the emergency room but to think about the bills you were walking out with was also incredibly difficult so um that was probably the, the hardest thing i had to deal with for a, a long time before i landed my new role and even when i landed my new role it was still touch and go because my new role was contingent on me um kind of going through this probation period right we'd offer that permanent position so that was very, very tough for me um, because essentially I've had family support, but I, it, financial support has been very different right. um, in, in the way it's been viewed. My mom has always been there for me, but at the same time, someone who's been working since she was 13 years old and has been that for herself, um, I didn't want to lean on anyone. So I was pretty tough on myself during that time. So for everyone who's impacted now with layoffs the last right. year, so I understand how it feels and where you've been. But I do um, wholeheartedly believe there is a brighter side at the end. Right, right. And what would you say is the 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 biggest lesson you learned from that that moment in your life? Um, you are your biggest champion. If you can't take a risk on yourself, who will? Mm -hmm. um, and I say this, and I also would say, never be afraid to go back or take mm -hmm. a step. I say this to say, so I actually got my way, uh, started my way in tech through a fellowship at AOL. Uh, I remember I wanted to get into advertising. I was getting, this is that time I was actually getting my master's. I was still unemployed. 
going back and forth temping. And I was learning a lot about the ad tech industry. And it always it was always strange to me that tech companies weren't going to these community colleges, these innocent colleges. They were just hiring, you know, out of state kids or kids that go to the Ivy League schools. Um, and someone mentioned AOL to me and I actually um, landed a fellowship role. It was not really paying anything. I was probably the oldest person to take on the fellowship role. And I remember um, I was interviewing with someone. I love him to death. His name is Ashley. And he said, you know, this is not, it's, this is an entry level opportunity. It's not a permanent position, but if you show us what you can do, there's an opportunity here. And while some people might, at my age at the time and my education at the time might shun that opportunity. It's like, I want right. it. Right. I want it. Cause I, I knew I can do what they asked me to do and more. Mm. I just needed the opportunity to get in the door and, and show and prove. So I believe I started in October and by December I had an offer letter. Wow. And I, I and I, I was my biggest advocate. I, I knew what I can do and I wasn't afraid to take a small step back for a huge step forward in the future. So I would, that's my, that would be my advice, be your own advocate and don't be afraid to go back. Right. No, those are so, that's some wise, uh, wise words right there because as you were saying that, I did a similar thing and I was, and I'll be very transparent. I was, I think I was around, I'm 39 now. Um, I think I was around 31, 32 around there. And I was, I applied for a coordinator position in broadcast, a traditional broadcast to be specific. And so it was two steps back in terms of compensation and kind of responsibility, but I knew it was in the lane that I want to play in. I knew it was a right step in that right direction to get me to where I wanted to go. And so I did that. Yes, it was, you know, humbling based on where I thought I should be at the time, especially as someone in their early 30s. Mm -hmm. But I was in that role for one year. And by before the end of the year, a friend of mine that I used to work with uh, reached out to me and said, hey, I have an opportunity in our digital ad sales department. Basically, do you want it? And I was like, well, tell me more. And then we had, you know, we had some coffee together and she basically said, as long as you formally apply, it's yours. And, 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 and that was it. And that was like what laid me up. But had I not taken that broadcast position, I wouldn't have been in the position to receive that digital position, which has led me throughout the rest of my career. So I, I, I champion what you just said, because I've done it before. And I completely understand the mindset, especially when you're of a certain age and you have, you know, a certain level of education, taking a step back or two steps back seems like not the move, but you got to bet on yourself, like you just said. So I love that. Yeah. And I, I tell, I still to this day tell people it's sometimes it doesn't hurt. I have a cousin who is, you know, he, he has a really good job, but he mm -hmm. is taking a step back to go back to school and do more because mm. he wants more he doesn't right. have to but he wants more and somebody was like why are you going back to school school's not everything well for him it is right he wants right. to be able to build up these tools through his education to do more and i i think a lot of the times especially in this day and age of social media we mm -hmm. look at what other people have right. and we i don't want to say get envious but we want the same thing or more right. of it. and 
we, we shouldn't be measuring ourselves to other people. I had to stop doing that a long time ago. I'm not saying it's easy. It's an easy place to get to in your mindset, but mm -hmm. when you stop measuring yourself to somebody else, the peace that will in it, like that will mm help -hmm. you is, is, is so empowering. Right. I, that person's not me. They're not, and I'm not them. Right. Um, Beyonce say I'm one of one. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And, and that and pretty much that that's it. You just we just understand that you are who you are, and no one else is who you are. Is is that's the most important thing? Absolutely. And you know what's that saying? Comparison is a is a thief of joy. Yep. I could completely relate to the whole, you know, going on social media. There was a a phase, a time in my life where I wouldn't look at anybody else's feet because I was trying to protect my mind, you know, because I was maybe envious or I felt like I should have that level of success or I felt like I was more talented or more skilled than that individual. And so I completely understand how easy it is for someone to fall into that particular trap. But to your point, you know, taking a note or a page from Beyonce, you're one of one or another way of putting it is you're the you you are the only you in this world. And I think a lot of people just need to focus on what their gifts are, what their talents are, what their purpose is. And if they don't know, spend the time to kind of discover what that is and just focus on you. Or as they say, do you. Exactly. Now, uh, Jesse, you, you kind of uh, mentioned this a few times since we spoke today. And you mentioned that you have uh, a disability. So if you don't mind sharing about your disability and how you've been able to kind of overcome and, 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 and make that work to the best of, the, of, of your ability. Yeah, so I was born with a physical ailment known as a club foot. But what's interesting about my situation is that while it's normally corrected, mm -hmm. um, I had a more severe case. So I was wearing braces, walking with limps, mm -hmm. um, muscle atrophy. So there's specific things with my disability that has preventing me from excelling in certain areas of my life. Um, um, I didn't really get to um, be involved in too many contact sports because school officials or outside sources were afraid of any injuries that might occur. Uh, I was considered a liability. There are jobs where I put down that I had a disability and they wouldn't hire me. And at one point, I remember I was when I started temping, the temp agency did tell me, don't let them know. It it's kind of like I had to wow. hide that part of me. Um, so it was very difficult, you know, and especially if you think about it, working in sales and working in tech and working in an industry where everything is corporate, where skirts and heels are expected. I things. Right. Uh, I was more, I was always a girl in flats and boots and sneakers and slacks because mm -hmm. I wasn't comfortable. So it was, it was very difficult navigating, going to these corporate dinners, going to, into these settings where I stood out for being different. Right. Um, but the way that I, I, I guess the way that I started, um, not kind of getting over it or embracing just who I, I am is knowing that my disability doesn't define me. It's a part of who I am, but it's not what's the definition of me. I'm a black woman with a physical disability. Yes, it's a part of me, but it doesn't define me. Um, I can show up in any sort of situation, especially at work and crush it. That's a fact. So if you're really worried about this physical disability that has nothing to do with you and I'm putting up numbers, then there's a problem. So it's kind of just understanding that the organization or a person doesn't have power on my identity or my performance 
this is not this, this is not stopping me from anything i was in, in essence i was stopping me because i was worried about what other people were thinking what other people were doing um and now there i will say now there are laws that are in more support of a person like me right so um more so again going into that mindset like i'm my biggest advocate i right. know what i can do i've already shown and proved and i continue to do so has helped me embrace this part of me and it has helped me move forward in any sort of difficulties I might have faced because of this ailment. Right. No, that's powerful. And I think, you know, there's a lesson, regardless of anyone has a, a physical disability. I once remember hearing that, you know, we, a lot of our own limitations are self-imposed. Absolutely. And so what I kind of took from what you just said is, you know, uh, like a mantra that I have for myself is like, you, you recognize the problem, you recognize you do have a real issue, you do have a real challenge, but you, you spend most of your time focusing on the solution. What can I do with what I have? And I think that is so, that's such an important mindset to have because we all have our own challenges, whether it be an actual physical disability, it might be an economical challenge, right? Mm -hmm. It might be a family dynamic or some sort of situation like that. And so I just think what you just described, how you've been able to progress in your career, I think is, is totally inspiring. I can understand why you, you've reached the heights that you've reached yeah. right now. Thank you. I got to give props to my family's, uh, especially the women in my family, they're a very big source of support right. and encouragement. And I, we, we call our crew the cousin crew. Um, mm. And I don't believe I have a lot of confidence in myself, but I strongly believe that they have helped with the confidence. They've helped boost me up, especially right. in moments where I didn't feel um, feel as I do now. Right, and that's so important that that family culture, that that support. Um, so, Jesse, let's let's uh, switch gears here for a moment. Mm -hmm. uh, DEI. Let's talk about that. It's an important matter that you champion. Mm -hmm. So, my question for you is: What are your thoughts on the recent ruling in the U.S. Uh, regarding affirmative action oh man uh misguided mm -hmm. extremely disappointing um and it sets us back decades in the education system and so much it's so it has so much far-reaching repercussions you know people often associate affirmative action with you know efforts to end discrimination for people of color right but there have been countless studies that show the greatest beneficiaries of affirmative action policies are white women across college campuses and in American workplaces. Now, there's nothing wrong with them benefiting from that because, you know, women in general did not have a lot of the opportunities we have now. Um, so, yes, white women do benefit more so from affirmative action. Um, also legacy families, families with that are have legacy at Harvard and Stanford, you know, their kids take precedent. Um, and so people think that affirmative action is just for people of color, it's, it's absolutely not. And when you, you take a step back to what I just said, because of affirmative action today, you know, Caucasian women are more educated, you know, and they have, they take up a bigger space in the workplace, especially in corporate leadership. Hmm. especially in comparison to, to women of color. Right. Um, so to summarize this, you know, play stupid game, win stupid prizes, and it sets everyone back except the white man. 
So that's how I feel. <laughs> oh, no, um, affirmative action. Yeah, I, I appreciate the transparency. And, and what's interesting about you stating the fact that, you know, white women were the uh, bit, uh, biggest benefactor of um, that that uh, initial affirmative action. Um, that was eye opening for me because I didn't know that. I I was that was brought to yeah that was brought to my attention literally maybe a month maybe six weeks ago and i was like wow that's crazy because there's so much hyperbole in our society right now and they make it seem like it was just purely about race race based or quote you know what i mean yeah um and it was it's easy to kind of just fall into that narrative because it sounds very plausible of course Mm -hmm. right but understanding that a lot of companies treated gender as you know a a minority so if you were a woman you would be treated as a minority and Mm -hmm. a lot of people didn't think about that they're just thinking about strictly about skin skin tone or ethnicity or uh what have you absolutely and again i there's there's women Women in general qualify for affirmative action, so that's that's not the, the issue. Is that anyone who were was in favor of mm-hmm. dismantling it? Do you know your stats? Do mm. you know your information? Um, and I, I think that it's a loss for everyone again, except for you know the white man. I, I, I everyone else, women, people of color, we're at much of a we're more at a loss because right. this is no longer in place in this specific group. Um, but again, I, I, I'm, I am in, I have hope and faith that mm-hmm. there can be a reverse course, um, or, or some sort of action where it's not, it's, it's not going to, again, have too much of a far reaching repercussions, reper- right. repercussions, but it's almost kind of like, we have to wait and see, um, at this point, you know, the Supreme right. Court justice is made up of specific, you know, one side it's primarily taken up by one side of, of the ballot and we are at a time and I don't want to get political, but, but we're at a time in a country where I think everyone needs to think about what their actions, mm-hmm. uh, what their votes count towards. And is it uh, aligned with your belief system? If it's aligned with your belief system, fine. But I want to make sure everyone actually considers the far reaching repercussions that your one selection has across everything that you you hold dear in faith right and what's crazy about the affirmative affirmative action ruling is that i often saw images of other minority groups in support of the uh the ruling the recent ruling that is and that always confused me Mm -hmm. um and so i just i never understood why someone of a different minority background was against it that's the part of that that was the, the, the lack of understanding that i had so maybe you can share some pov on that if you had any um i think there i think it's just misinformation again i mm-hmm. again i think uh individuals or organizations who have been from the against affirmative action have painted it or right. portrayed to be just for black people mm-hmm. and that's the case it's, it's right. it helps it's for everyone mm-hmm. um who fall within the minority group women and people of color not just black people and i think uh again people who have been against it paints it this way Mm -hmm. and so i don't think they're inherently just against i think it's just uh, i honestly think it's misinformation and that has contributed to it it no longer being in place right 
No, that makes perfect sense. And there's a lot of misinformation because there's a lot of hyperbole out there and we are all lazy a bit. We just read headlines and not really look into stuff. Um, <laughs> it's, it's crazy, but it, it, it's true. Um, so as a follow-up to that, to that original question, um, lately it looks like a lot of companies are slashing their, you know, their DEI initiatives. And uh, with that, quite a few DEI executives are either leaving or being fired. Um, so what's your kind of take on that? Um, how do you view that? Do, do you feel like that impacts yourself or your colleagues who are, who are, who are leaders in this space? Yes, it very, it's very interesting. So during a COVID, I would say within the last couple of years, the role of uh, DEI uh, executive has been one of the most in-demand roles mm-hmm. in the organization. Absolutely, and it's kind of du- kind of dwindled. Uh, I'm, I, it's saddened to see that it's ha- uh, that this is happening, and it most definitely is happening. Um, while the organization I'm currently part of continues to support DNI programming initiatives and activations, it does make some initiatives harder overall for other DNI agents who are working to partner with another organization. Who might be cutting uh, their DNI funding? So if, I, if so, if one organization wants to partner with another, the other organization might not be able to do it because they're cutting their DNI programming. So that will right. make things harder overall for the industry and for the people that are impacted. Something that has always been a concern within a DNI space is that there are some organizations that have put uh, that have made DNI roles and or um, and teams report into HR. They should be different. Some agree, some disagree. Um, but I, but DEI is considered a business strategy, and as such, it should be on its own. It deserves its own seat at the executive table. Um, and anytime DEI teams or individuals report into HR, it kind of con- contra- contradicts itself. You know, DEI is about transparency. HR departments are designed to protect the organization, uh, its brand and its interests. So that's where conflict arise. So I think that yes, DNI roles are definitely dwindling. Their, their you know programs are being cut, and there's many reasons for it. And one of them I think could be because the organizations are funneling it into HR versus having it as a business strategy. Bottom line. That's very interesting. I never actually looked at it as a business strategy i always thought of it falling under the hr bucket because i guess that's just how most companies do it and i guess you know are there studies that show that there are actual bottom line benefits to having a more diverse i'm sure there is because this is your space right so i'm sure there's studies that show that there is benefits to uh, having our diverse, you know, workforce and how that impacts the bottom line. Absolutely. I can't name them off the top of my head, but there's definitely studies that prove, mm-hmm. um, that when you have, uh, when you have employees who are part of us, you know, part of different groups of color, of identity, right. um, that are building different programming, outsiders can see that and employees are happier when they have that space. And right. another thing is if you are a brand or a product you know, the black community are, is, I believe, where the where the highest spenders overall in, in all markets, when you think about it. And essentially, when we see someone with a product that looks like us, we identify better. 
right? So there's definitely studies that prove that having DNI initiatives, having branding that's, that, that that encompasses everyone does work. But again, if you don't have that a part of your strategy, you're just looking at it from an HR perspective, that's where things are going to going to come into conflict. Right. right? And I also but I also think that um there are organizations organizations sometimes rush to create these different initiatives and programming and they're expecting such a quick turnaround of results and that's not how we how things happen. Right. Right. Um so it it depends on how uh, the organization sees DNI functionalities um, and what their overall mission and goal is. Because um, right. if they don't align, if you're just looking for a quick buck, then it's not going to work. Right. And for clarity's sake, because uh, I find it really interesting that you pointed out that distinction. What is the what makes it problematic when DEI is aligned with HR? Uh, full stop transparency. Because for as for instance, DNI amp helps amplify amplify the voices of the others. It it, it, mm-hmm. it makes sure that everyone um, feels uh, accounted for in the mission of the organization. HR, when you consider HR, is um, working at the working on behalf of the organization to protect its interest. Uh, DNI is working to help the employees. I think people sometimes confuse it too with HR does work on behalf of the employees, but its response is, is to the organization. So HR is is not, should not be responsible for building out any transparent programming um, for uh, for DNI. It, it really, it, it conflicts. Um, HR, you know, airs on the side of, we're gonna keep things hush-hush quiet, uh, while DNI is kind of like, we're gonna be loud and proud, and or we're gonna be loud and address the issue openly it's two different things and i think that it, it's such a it conflicts and contradicts each other that it, it literally should not be with the same bubble right and so you're saying it's better if it has its own division or own department or would it fall under ideally what if if not hr what would be an ideal you know pillar within a company or a category or a business unit it should fall under it should fall into its own business unit okay understand yeah, I, i've i've been at organizations where it hasn't mm-hmm. and it's failed i i i i personally believe and there have been studies that prove it works better when it's on its own but mm. that's my opinion yeah. i know some people might consider it differently okay no fair enough um all right let's talk let's talk ad color um you were previously the chief of staff and a board member for several years so for my listeners who are unfamiliar with ad color can you provide us with a brief uh, background about the organization and, and some of the work that you did there? Yeah, um, so AdColor is an organization that champions uh, diversity and inclusion in the creative and tech industries. Um, it previously was more so creative focused, but it's branched off in tech. There, are, when you think about AdColor, I want you to think about two different components. You know how AdColor operates. The organization strongly believes in rising up. Um, it's and it, and as you're rising, it's your duty to reach back. So for AdColor, the organization helps amplify individuals and, and shines a light on companies' achievements while giving these new le- leaders the tools they need to continue to succeed and essentially help those after them. So when you think about it as someone who's a senior partner manager like me, um, why sh- why can't I help those who are um, who are entering the workforce and want to do something like me? Why can't I offer those mentorship opportunities? Why can't I give them advice? Why can't, you know, obviously someone has helped me you know, as and I should be able, it's kind of like, you know, just giving back when you can. 
Um, and this organization was started by Tiffany R. Warren and it's been around for so long, <laughs> over 17 years, I believe. Um, and you know, it just continues to celebrate D it, it continues to build out DNI initiatives and celebrate brand creative wins and just, and the conference, it has, there's a conference that happens every year in the fall. Um, and it's a couple, it's a few days worth of content focused on, you know, uh, creativity, identity, um, and these sessions are so insightful. They're so important. Um, and I think the organization truly, it truly helps other organizations be more diverse in its thought, um, and how it sees its employees and it forces them to get out their comfort zone. So it's a brilliant organization. I was specifically on the advisory board, um, chief of staff for a few years, and it was probably one of the best experiences I've ever had. Awesome. I love it. I actually tried to go last year. I think it was in LA, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to finding out what the next one's going to be. It's going to be in LA again, November. Oh, that's amazing. Hopefully I can make this year. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Yes. Um, okay. So I wasn't sure if I was going to ask this question, but since we're on the kind of topic of diversity, inclusion, all that sort of stuff. Um, from your POV, from your experience thus far, you know, being on the advisory board for Ad Color, you know, being one of one, as you said earlier, what do you think needs to happen specifically in the advertising field for things to really change for people that are, you know, of color? Um... I don't necessarily think if there's one thing specifically that needs to change. I can mm -hmm. only speak from my own experience where it's kind of like within the advertising and tech space. I wish I knew about the opportunities that are out there where my talent could be utilized sooner rather than later. Right. I think with a lot of uh, creative, with, within the industry of creativity and tech, the missed opportunities are for those who are inner city kids. I can speak as an inner city kid and say, I wish that these organizations were coming to my colleges or my high school and being present and telling me about these opportunities. Because growing up in Brooklyn, New York, in, in a Caribbean community, the idea is that you become a nurse, a doctor, a teacher, a lawyer. Uh, I didn't understand that there's a world of opportunities outside of this space. I was painting and drawing it. I was entering contests as a kid. And I kind of gave up that talent um, because I didn't understand what the opportunities were. Right. I played the drums for six years. Oh, wow. I didn't see myself a girl like me in these opportunities. And, and you know, it's it's just I wish that these industries consider inner cities kids and went to the, you know, um, college fairs and said, we're here. Now they do. Uh, but I wish they did more of it. And right. uh, I think that. Uh, there's still opportunity there. I know some some of the most incredible and brilliant people uh, that are creative um, who grew up down the block from me. And right. I wish they had the opportunity or knew of the opportunities that are available to them. And I think sometimes we miss the mark in the industry um, overall um, to to reach out in that area. Right. And I think, you know, you, you make a good point, the awareness, the opportunity. And I think a lot of that is when we have people like you within the industry, within organizations, you have that insight because it's a lived experience for you. So yeah. the higher you get, the more influence that you have, the bigger your network is. And so you can now influence 
these decisions uh, moving forward. Yeah, and I, I, I try to influence with impact. Um, I try to ensure that the influence I'm providing or I'm trying to have is not just to help myself, it's actually helping another person. I am, I, I, I enjoy what I do. Um, and this is, who knows where I'll be in a year or two years, but I wanna make sure that any influence I, or impact I have can benefit someone who is looking to do, be in this industry, who um, who's looking to grow and learn. And you know, I've done mentoring and I'm still mentoring and I'm still being mentored and I'm still being coached. Right. And I, I just try to, to do what I can um, as, as I rise up and in my career whatsoever. I love that. And I, I don't know if you've ever heard of the 33% rule. Have you ever heard of that? Um, I, I, will, I will be telling a fib, fib if I did. <laughs> so you're actually doing it. Um, so the 33% rule is that you're supposed to spend 33% of your time with people on your level. So your, your colleagues, mm-hmm. uh, 33% of your time with people that are trying to get to your level. So you're, you're mentoring people. And then 33% of people, uh, 30% of, 33% of your time with people to the level that you're trying to reach to. So your mentors. Um, so you're, you're doing that, but that's the, the rule of 33. Uh, just some more last kind of questions for you. Um, what do you believe is the best lesson you've learned from dealing and overcoming uh, failure thus far? It's not the end. I think I think that would that's probably going to be the number one lesson I take with me wherever I go. Um, mm. Every um, every failure is an opportunity to do better and learn from. Um, every failure is not the end. I have had many hardships and many failures throughout my entire life and my career, personal, professional, and. I can never let it be the end for me because there is no end at that one thing. Um, I think, again, sometimes you put this, uh, we're all allowed moments of sadness, despair, happiness, whatever, but I can't let a failure be the end because I have so much more to do and and gain. And I, I think that's my lesson. I, I, it can never be the end for me. And I hope that something I leave with the impact I leave with anyone that I am in contact with is that I'm never going to stop. I, 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 I love I, that. <laughs> I'm never going to, I'm never going to stop. I'm not saying that I'm looking to be the CEO over some fortune 500 company, which I could be, but I, I'm, I'm never going to stop doing me. Um, because I don't see a limit. I love that. And while you're doing that, it, it, it triggered my mind about a quote I heard actually heard it from Deion Sanders you know he's trending crazy right now yes. and so he had said yeah. and he didn't he didn't make this quote it was Winston Churchill says success is not final failure is not fatal and basically that's what you just described to us uh, so I appreciate that man I, I love that very very much and as a follow-up to that when you are no longer here Jesse how would you like to be remembered um, you know, it's interesting. My cousins always describe me as, as strong, as strong, as strong, as strong. Mm-hmm. I, you know, that's great being strong. Um, mm-hmm. I think what I want to be 
what I would like to be um, remembered by. At least one thing is that I'm a fighter. Um, strong is great, fighter is important. Because again, I'm not gonna let a failure stop me. I'm not gonna let right. something just, it's, set, it's a setback, setback. It's not, it's not the end. So being remembered as a fighter, a fighter with love, a fighter with love is important. It's something I would I would really like to be remembered for. Um, that's something that um, I've I've had to fight for so many different things in so many different areas, and it's very right. important for me to continue to have that spirit. And if if I could be remembered as being a fighter, being bold, being fearless, being driven, that's those are things that I really really hold dear into who I am. Um, so if I could be remembered for those things or one word to encompass those things, that's that's what I would, I would like to be, be. I would like that to be my legend um, as I go forth. I love it. I love it. Uh, especially the fearless part because I feel, you know, fear really puts a stronghold on a lot of people and really, you know, prevents us, allows us to be our own worst enemies. So... I love the fact that you said that. So to end on more of a, a silly kind of fun note, I do this thing where I do rapid fire questions where I ask you <laughs> three random questions. You just got to give me the first thought that comes to your mind. So my first question to you, uh, Jesse, is what is your superpower? My superpower. Mm -hmm. I am a great listener. I'm a, a great mm. listener, a great active listener. I don't know if that's considered a superpower, but I am a great. Oh, it is in this day and age. Um, because in this day and age, I would consider that. I'd rather show up into a room and hear mm -hmm. other people speak than be the one speaking. I learn more from. I, I can learn more from that. I can observe more from that. I can understand if there's a problem and what the solution is from that. So if I had to name one thing, it would be I'm, I'm a great active listener. Um, and then I would say, I, I, I would have to say um, the fearless part. Not much can, can, can block my perception of where I wanna be and things I wanna do. So those, those, th those two would be my superpowers. I love it. My second one is, what is one quick hack you use to deal with either nervousness or anxiousness? Oh man. So I, so I, I know when you think about anxiety, they, they say that you should, you know, do the pulse check, um, and you know, the wrist check for check a pulse. Something that I started doing and I learned about when I, and when I started doing more speaking engagements, presentations mm -hmm. is when you're, before you go on and you're sitting down, or even if you're at the podium, if you hold your thumb like this you can, and you can feel your pulse, you're already centering yourself because you're focusing your anxiety and that nervous energy into that pulse. So that that has helped calm me down. Um, I know some people do the superpower stance. That's great. That doesn't work for me. It's more so kind of like centering myself that way has helped, um, helped me go right. forward. Well, I'm holding my thumb right now, so I'm leaving. <laughs> um, I love that. I'm always looking for those type of hacks. And my last one here is, what is a quote or mantra that you're currently living by? I'm gonna, it's a, it's a biggie quote and I don't wanna mess it up. I love um, it. Let's keep it Brooklyn. My 
presence is a present. Never tense, never hesitant. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm pretty I sure. I love it. I love it. Um, and I said, and it goes back to me. It goes back to me just being like, I belong here. Um, and mm. no matter, you know, no matter what failures or hiccups or setbacks I might have, I know I belong somewhere. I know I belong in this room or in this place. I'm going to get there. And my presence is a present. You know, I always say organization won't ha- will not hire you unless they need you. Your presence is a present. Love for them. You, you get paid for a reason. I love it. You're supposed to be there. I love it. Just drop some bars on the final note. That's a mic drop right there. So, uh, Jesse, uh, for the people that want to maybe hire you for a speaking engagement, uh, maybe want to collaborate with you in some way, shape, or form, what is the best way for people uh, like that to reach you? Through LinkedIn, drop me a note, drop me a ping, connect. I am always open to just mm-hmm. even engaging in a conversation with individuals. I think that we all can be a bit more open in how we welcome each other. Um, so just send me a quick note mm-hmm. me to engage in however I can. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. So guys, that concludes uh, this episode of Three Questions with Corey Kareem. And as many of you know, I like to end each episode by saying this. If you just want to impress people, you know, talk about the shiny things you have in your house, talk about the awards, the accolades that you have, yada, yada, yada. But if you really want to have an impact on someone else's life, talk about your transgressions, your failures, those down periods. That's how you really move the needle in someone else's life. So with that being said, Jesse and I are out. Peace and love. Until the next time, and check us out on the Alive Podcast Network. Peace. Look